We recently asked a couple hundred of you emerging biotech leaders about your go-to sources of information when you face tough professional challenges. Your top response wasn't webinars, it wasn't scientific journals, it wasn't trade shows, it wasn't even consultants. Far and away, you said you most often turn to your peers for trusted insight. Enabling a community of peers is what the Business of Biotech podcast is all about. It's also what our new Business of Biotech newsletter is all about. Peer-driven content, no strings attached, delivered to your inbox once a month. Go to bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B to subscribe. The Business of Biotech is produced by Bioprocess Online, part of the Life Science Connect community with support from Cytiva. Cytiva also demonstrates its commitment to the leaders of new and emerging biopharma at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. Check that out. I can't name an organization that's doing more than Nimble to advance biopharmaceutical manufacturing. Nimble is the National Institute for Innovation in Manufacturing Biologics and is funded through a $70 million cooperative agreement with the National Institute of Standards and Technology, as well as financial commitments from a literal who's who of big biopharma membership. So it's well-heeled financially, but importantly, it's putting those dollars to good use on an incredibly aggressive list of projects to advance biopharma manufacturing technology and to cement the United States leadership in biopharmaceutical innovation. But we can't win for patients with technology alone. We need people. And that's why in 2018, recognizing the skilled talent shortfall, beleaguering the industry, Nimble hired John Balchunas as workforce director. In the time he's been there, Balchunas has spearheaded a number of creative initiatives in that vein. And he's here with me today to talk about it. John, welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. Uh, as I mentioned, Nimble is one of my favorite editorial targets. I've written about Nimble several times. Kelvin Lee, uh, your, your executive director there, I think is uh, one of the smartest guys in the space. He's always got a lot of lot of good things to say. Great, uh, great insight into what Nimble's doing every time I speak with him or, or listen to him speak. Um, for those of you not in the know, uh, go just just Google Nimble N I I M B L. And look it up. When I say there is no shortage of project work going on there, I mean it. You can get lost. Like you want to go down a rabbit hole? Go to the Nimble's website and and just start reading about the project work they're doing in biopharma manufacturing. It's incredible. Um, and like I said, uh, workforce development is a a relatively uh, new mantle for. Oh, you've been there for since 2018, correct, John? I have. Yeah, yeah I have. But but. You were brought into the fold, you know, looking at your resume, going back to like 2003, when I say like you've got this very unique, perhaps unparalleled uh, position in workforce development, biopharma, going back to 2003, you you, you started out as workforce development director uh, for North Carolina Biotech Center. Uh, then you were the assistant director of professional development programs for biomanufacturing training and education center at North Carolina State University. Uh, and then in 2018, you became workforce director at Nimble. That's like, uh, it might be fair to say that's unparalleled. Like there aren't a whole lot of people who since, you know, for, for that long have been working in workforce development in a very specific niche industry. So tell me about that. Like what, uh, what how, how did you find yourself in this very unique niche kind of position? Well, and it's, and it's funny you say that because like I can, I can also go back to like, I, I can remember 
gosh, to, to meetings like with, with a couple of people nationally back in around 2006, 2007. And we kind of joked at the time that there were only there were only maybe 20 of us in the country that cared about this sort of thing. And, and I'd say now that's probably totally different. I think in, you know, in, in the spirit, especially with, you know, the, the current administration's push around the bioeconomy, there's a whole influx of interest in, in workforce development within the biotech space in general. So it's, it's really cool to see. But I, I, you know, like when I look at where I got sort of my, where a seed got planted, if you will, around kind of workforce development in general, I really have to go back to just bad, bad undergraduate advising when I, when I was in school. Um, I was huh. a, I mean, I was a microbiology undergrad and it, and it didn't sort of take at the time. So that wasn't sort of the catalyst right then and there from the start. You know, but I, I was, you know, as a microbiology undergrad, um, didn't have a strong advisor, didn't know any better, didn't know to push for a different advisor. So wasn't put, looking for interns, wasn't look, or wasn't looking for internships or anything like that. And really got to my senior year in undergrad and realized I love science. I love writing about it. I love talking about it, but I hate doing it. I don't even like the way a lab smells and don't have any desire to do it. Mm. And so, you know, at the time, my, my solution was I'm going to graduate and I'm going to run as far from the, the lab as I possibly can. So I went across campus over to the English department and got, got my graduate degree in, in technical communication and got into the industry and did, did tech writing for a number of years, both for you know, sort of startup biotech as well as more established in vitro diagnostic and biotech companies. Um, long story short, got burnout on that. An opportunity opened at, at the biotech center. And as I started into that role with North Carolina Biotech Center, which was the, or which is, I guess, the oldest government-funded uh, uh, or economic development organization in the world focused on on biotech, and so they they themselves have have some stature, you know, both locally here in North Carolina, but then just worldwide in general. And it was sort of then that I kind of realized, okay, I can kind of see the problems with my own my own education path, and and where where things could have been different or could have been better had I been you know properly, you know properly uh, mentored, you know, if you will. So that kind of that was sort of where where when I look back at things now, I guess the, the seed got planted. So you're saying just sort of retrospectively, you're reflecting, you could, you could reflect on your experience as a, as a student, a bio, biomed student, um, and where perhaps there, there were holes, gaps, or there, there wasn't direction that was leading you towards, you know, un- understanding what opportunities were before you in biopharma. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Despite the fact, like, I mean, your case is a little bit unique because you just didn't, you, you know, you said you you just didn't like lab. I mean, do, do you think, like, had you had yeah. you been steered a little bit differently, maybe you would have embraced uh, your your time in the lab? I, you know, I really, I, I've had, I've thought about that a lot. I mean, I, you know, like, I, you know, I have no regrets. I mean, I, I wouldn't, you know, I've, I've loved, I still, I do love the writing piece, and I love that that whole side of it. So I think I would have still gravitated there. But there are there are pieces of me that wonder, you know, had I had the right mentor to truly appreciate doing science, would I would I've gotten into science and enjoyed doing it? And I I just didn't, you know. And so I don't. There's there is that piece of me that wonders, you know, could could I have taken a different path had I had had I had that right advising? I mean, that said, I look back on that now. I see you know students in similar situations, and I, I can see why, and I can kind of offer some guidance and you know sure. sort of see where see where there's challenges that I you know just through through my own, my own experience. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of work did you do? So as I mentioned, then you went on to assistant directorship uh, at uh, a professional development programs at uh, North Carolina state uh, in the biomanufacturing training and education center. So what kind of work, what kind of work were you doing there that kind of led up to um, now I want to kind of get, get through that work. And then what, what led to the transition to nimble? 
Yeah. So I guess, so sort of finishing the, you know, that whole career arc. I mean, I, I think when, you know, so, so even before BTEC, when I was at, um, when I was at the North Carolina Biotech Center, a lot of my work was working with, um, you know, that as an organization, we kind of spanned, we sort of sat in that intermediate space between industry, between nonprofits, between universities, community colleges, state government. And so I think we were in this kind of interstitial space that's bringing everybody together from a partnership space. I really enjoyed that. Um, a lot of my work, you know, in that, in that role was, was really focused on uh, trying to understand industry's needs, you know, from a, from a training and education perspective, I got to know the folks at NC state, uh, BTEC got stood up as, as a training center. And at its time, it was the first, uh, the first simulated CGMP, uh, by manufacturing training, training center in the, in the world. So it was another, another first, you know, here in, here in North Carolina where I'm based, um, and I, you know, I, I saw that as being just a, a fascinating opportunity. And so I, I had the opportunity to come over to BTEC, uh, help grow and build their, their professional development program. A lot of my role at that time was, you know, building off of what, what I was doing at, at the Biotech Center in a way. I mean, this partnership was business development. It was a lot of talk conversations with industry, trying to help, you know, cement, uh, you know, new training programs for them, uh, new short courses, and trying to get that out there for, for the industry. And, um, Along the way, you know, I, I think BTEC and NC State was definitely always seen as sort of a thought leader in kind of the biopharma education and kind of research space. And so uh, we had the good fortune, you know, not myself, but others, others at BTEC, Dr. Ruben Carbonell and some others of being involved in, in the early sort of conceptual thinking and, and grant writing that ended up being funded as, as nimble. And so, you know, BTEC was always involved in those conversations that were, you know, sort of championed by the University of Delaware and, and Kelvin. Um, and so, you know, once, once Nimble stood up, I was, you know, I was involved in sort of informally in different capacities, whether it was as, you know, an academic co-chair on a, on a committee, but I was honestly, I was really drawn to the mission. I, you know, I, I feel strongly about Nimble's mission and, and sort of the opportunity to change. And it's also, it's getting back to the same type of sort of partnership and kind of broad reach that I had within the biotech center of being able to kind of, kind of talk to folks with, within, you know, the whole ecosystem and, and this time at the national level instead of the state level. And so it's just a, it's a beautiful opportunity for me. Yeah. Yeah. I have a tendency as, as you're speaking, I'm like my, my, I have a tendency, I have a bad habit of wanting to fast forward and cut, cut the chases. And I don't want to do that right yeah. now, John, cause I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to slow down here and, and, and spend some time. Uh, but, but I'll tell you where I want to fast forward to is like the work that, that you're doing uh, in, in so many cases, other organizations, other, you know, so-called, industry experts on on biopharma biotech uh, workforce development and the skilled labor shortage uh that that work starts and ends with identifying the problem perhaps measuring the problem you know making some statements about the fact that this is a problem factual statements you know yeah. like clear 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 facts like you know he, here's the problem here's how it presents itself here are the numbers uh here's why it's a problem but very little in the way of solutions. So like in my mind, I want to go like, you know, yeah. let's get to that, but we're going to get to that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go there yet. I'm talking myself off the ledge. Okay. <laughs> uh, what I want to, what I want to ask you now is, is that, is that, uh, that problem part, like before we get to what you're doing and what Nimble's doing to solve the problem, how, how are you defining sort of the, the problem itself? Like, and how have, how have you been doing that uh, over the course of your career? How's it changed? Like, tell, tell me like what that problem statement has looked like from 2003 until, until now. Gosh, okay. So well, that's a good, so that's a good question actually. To, it's a to big, it's a big question. Because it's, yeah. 
Well, and so, but it's but it's probably a better way to ask the question than to just ask what the problem is now, because you know, back back in two thousand three, you know, looking at things again in North Carolina, but then also I think some of the stuff that I was not involved with back back in those days, like in the early two thousands, was also talking to community colleges and others, you know, nationally. And and back then, I think the big problem, honestly, honestly, was there was so little parity between industry and academia. They didn't talk, and and so you didn't. So, so the academics really didn't know what needed to be taught from an applied standpoint. And so at that point, I think, you know, at some level, I think the problem was, was easier in the sense that a lot of, a lot of the successes in the early years, not just North Carolina, but in other places as well, came from, you know, cementing new partnerships between companies and, and the academics to really lay out what the needs are, you know, what, what is needed from a training perspective and in terms of, you know, GMP and upstream, you know, unit operations, downstream unit operations, what does say that technician level person need to know? What does a chemical engineer need to know? What does an entry level, you know, process development scientist need to know? And so I think a lot of that kept people going for, you know, for years and, and sort of, you know, developed a lot of really interesting programs, both at the community college level, the university level. And I think that was really, you know, the, the, the problem back in the day, um, the other piece of that I think was also the the lack of collaboration between the companies. And so I think like in North Carolina, we were somewhat unique back back in those days in the sense that we had a lot of biomanufacturing, but they, there wasn't a lot of true competition between them. And so companies would actually come to the table and you know it was relatively easy to break down those barriers that, okay, 90% of what you guys are doing is not proprietary. So let's talk about what's needed from a technical standpoint in training. And so it sort of snowballed from there in North Carolina. Um, but to fast forward a little bit, you know, just to, to finish that question, you know, like when when Nimble got started, that was a lot of the assumption was, OK, that's where we need to start. What does industry need from a, from a technical standpoint? What are what are the training needs? What are the gaps? And I think like one of the things that I, I really strongly think is, you know, in the early years, we realized we know that stuff, you know, within our community are a hotbed of you know community colleges and most of the big research universities that are active in, in biotech and biopharma manufacturing, you know, focused programs. And so I think we have a good handle on what's needed, uh, you know, from a technical standpoint, what became very clear as more and more large industry members, you know, came on, came on to Nimble's, you know, came into the fold and within our, within our membership ecosystem is, you know, it's really, a, it's a numbers game. And what everybody kept saying they need is just, they need more people. And there was a, a you know, and so that became really the, you know, the resounding message for us. And I think once the pandemic hit and after the pandemic, that's really become, what we keep hearing over and over again is it's just it's just a numbers game, um, and I you know I, I can probably go further and say I think part of the other challenge is just simply I don't think enough young people see biotech and biopharma as a career possibility for them, and I think there's a number of different factors that sort of play into that, but I think that's that's yeah. one of the, the the main barriers that our their industry has faced for for many years. Yeah, we're we're gonna get back to that because I want to I want to I want to zero in on that when we talk about some of the actual you know yeah. solution oriented stuff that you guys are working on. Um, you know, you mentioned proprietary kind of perceptions in, in the earlier days, and I wonder. I'm sure there's still some of that today. You know, in in, in academic oriented labs uh, where people are doing science, perhaps in in, a, in, in somewhat of a, a silo, who don't have maybe the benefit of that North Carolina ecosystem that you saw back in the day there's probably some perception around like work that we're doing that is in our minds, maybe proprietary that nimble has this really unique uh, perspective on because uh, you know, I, I think from nimble's vantage point, there are several people in your organization that can look around and go, you know, <laughs> these guys think they're working on some skunk works, you know, top secret proprietary stuff and they're not. And we know that. 
we can share that. Like, is there, is there, is there, is that sort of a barrier to what you guys are trying to do is like making it clear or communicating to industry uh, just, just what is truly proprietary and, and, and what might not be? Does that persist? Yeah. I mean, I th- no, I'd, I'd say it's definitely, I'd, I'd say it's definitely a, an issue that we face, but, you know, and I can probably comment again, more from the, the education and training perspective, but I think others, you know, on, on the technical side of what we do could probably say the same thing holds true. Um, I think there's definitely concern about all that, you know, and I think there's definitely concern about, you know, what is, what is the right sort of space that Nimble can help drive, drive innovation in particular, you know, in, in the sense of what do companies want to do in-house versus what are they, what do they, you know, want to trust to, you know, the, the ecosystem at large to kind of to help raise, you know, raise the raise the bar on. And I think, you know, the education and training space, that's always been kind of the million dollar question. And I don't know that we ever I don't know that we we yet have sort of the, the solid answer on that. But, I you know, I can say it, it is very much a problem. Um, I really think the you know, I I think probably the one the one way that I'd probably answer that is, you know, within the educational community, the community colleges have been sharing curriculum and sharing content and sharing their expertise as a community outside of Nimble for, for many years. I mean, since probably the mid eighties when they all got started in biotech. And so that's, that's how they operate. But when you look at sort of the, the university community, they're, they're much more protective from an IP perspective in terms of what, you know, what they, what they do in terms of their curriculum. The other factor that is definitely at play more so I'd say probably in the last, I'd say four or five years is just even regionally. And so, you know, what happens is, you know, in North Carolina, we're very strong. We've, we've won, you know, by, by stroke of luck and just a lot of good, good hard work put in, we've won most of the big biomanufacturing site locations over the last few years. And so a lot of the, the education and workforce infrastructure and sort of secret, secret sauce, if you will, there's folks within North Carolina that view that as a competitive advantage. And we don't want to let that out of the state. I know that folks in Massachusetts feel the same way and they've got programs that are, that are winners in their region and they don't necessarily want to share and the same holds true with California or the Mid-Atlantic and different, every region sort of, you know, wants to hold on to what they're doing. And I think that, you know, that poses a neat sort of opportunity challenge, you know, if you will, for, for nimble in terms of how can you, what, what is that sort of pre-competitive space where, you know, from a training perspective where different regions can all come together and, and work on something. And that's where, that's why, I, again, I go back to that earlier comment about, you know, awareness and just sort of interest in these careers in general is being, yeah. is definitely probably the, you know, the big, the big space when it comes to kind of pre, pre-competitive areas. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, you know, when you hear from your constituents, the the innovators, the sponsors, the, the biopharma companies who are, uh, you know, in, in need of manufacturing uh, skill, uh, numbers is is kind of it, it kind of rolls up to like we need numbers, we need numbers of 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 uh, we we need the the pool to increase, if you will. Um, how big a problem, like the, the numbers problem itself? How big a problem is it? Is it? I, I hear you know, there's. Uh, <clears throat> There, there are there are doom and gloom outlets, you know, who are saying like this is crisis yeah. stage stuff. Is it is it is it a crisis or is it just like a big problem that we need to solve? I, you know, I, I wish I had the numbers to back it because I think a lot of what I hear and I, I can kind of comment it's on hard that to, a couple of hard ways. to quantify, isn't it? it? it like it, it's hard. Is yeah. it, right, is, is anecdotal, right? I, but I would I would definitely say from everything that I'm hearing, it feels like crisis stage, and it's again like before the pandemic, everybody was everybody, but all the conversations I was having with companies, you know, they almost would always say the same thing in another three or four years, another five to 10 years, it's going to be, it's going to be a crisis. And then I think the pandemic hit and I think it's really become, 
become that crisis. And I think part of, you know, part of, I think the pandemic was sort of a, a perfect storm, if you will, and that, you know, now people have a lot more choice in terms of the work they're doing thanks to, you know, the, the world of virtual work has taken off. And, um, you know, I, I watch LinkedIn close enough to see that people, people are hopping left and right. People are leaving the industry to go to totally different industries where they have more flexible work. When you're looking at, you know, something like manufacturing within biopharma in particular, I mean, those are jobs that, you know, the, the folks that are working in the labs or in the manufacturing floor, they don't have that same level of flexibility. And so how, how can big pharma make those jobs still attractive when they could be earning just as much, if not more, in some other industry working fully remote? Or, I mean, gosh, I mean, they could even be probably working as an Uber driver. I mean, making good, good, good wage in the, in the gig economy. And I, I think so there's a lot of new, new competition, if you will, for, for where people can focus their attention. And I, I definitely think it's, it's, it's nearing, you know, crisis mode. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you and I were chatting before we started recording and I, and I, 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 I posited this to you and I, and I want to bring it up again, sort of in the, in the context of like where the, where the need is most acute, like where the biopharma need is most acute. So, cause I think they're related. So I, I, I'd said to you, you know, it's interesting that we would have this conversation about, uh, you know, a, a, a gap in, in skilled labor and a shortage of skilled labor in biopharma. When again, some of our doom and gloom media outlets are, are very proud of the layoff trackers that they're running. that are just like, you know, they're, they're rolling like this month there were this many layoffs and, uh, particularly in, in, in emerging bio. Um, so, you know, on one hand, there are elements, there, there, there are parts of the business that are losing people because we can't afford to keep them. On the other, on the other hand, there are, you know, there's this big element of the business where we, we don't have the, the talent that we need. And we'd be happy to, to, to bring those people in. So I, I guess it's, it's sort of a, a two-part question. How do you reconcile the whole, like a new and emerging, particularly uh, the, the layoff, I guess, activity that's going on. And then, on the on the manufacturing side, the skilled labor side, where is that need most acute? Like, can you point to a specific place in sort of the the production, you know, the production line where there's just not the the skill and the volume of skilled labor that that we need? Yeah, know, it's a very I, I that's a, it's, a, it's a complex and convoluted question. I'm I'm really good at that though. Yeah. Well, well, and I and I don't want to lose track of of some thoughts here because I I could answer that in sort of a couple of different ways. I think you know one one thing that I I mentioned to you when we when we were chatting about this before we started recording, you know, is I think where I see the you know just layoffs as they happen and especially just the volatility within sort of the emerging side of of the industry, really you know creating some unique. It, I think that definitely has created some some unique challenges, if you will. And so if we step away from you know, sort of the, the manufacturing and production floor jobs and sort of that, the entry-level jobs for a second, we can come back to that. But if we focus on, you know, on, say, you know, emerging technologies, cell and gene therapy, and uh, I think, you know, and some of these some of these layoffs, and I, again, I don't follow this closely. And so this is, again, coming off, you know, what I what I see from from talking to others that do and, and just talking to people that are that are out there doing the hiring, you know, where, where things fall short or where things have created a you know, another sort of perfect storm is, you know, on the one hand, people are getting laid off. A lot of the people that are getting laid off are, are mid-career professionals. And there's this sort of spiraling of their careers where, you know, it's not what it was, you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago where you you, you moved into a, you know, an associate role, climbed the, climbed, climbed the ranks, slowly became an associate two, an associate three, became a manager, became a senior manager, became a director. And there's, there's people that do the layoffs are kind of jumping from company, you know, left and right, kind of 
ping-ponging with their career kind of ratcheting up as they go. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden you've got people that are working as, as directors that have, you know, I'd say less than five, 10 years experience under their belt. And they're learning, they're still learning how to manage people and they're still learning how to manage budgets. And I think that's creating whole new challenges for the industry that, that I think are, are going to be interesting. I think the other, the other piece though, that I think is kind of helping, if you will, mitigate some of the, you know, the, the volatility, if you will, or maybe it creates it um, also, you know, within the kind of the emerging, you know, biotech space, cell and gene therapy and all that is, it's also, it's also changed, you know, from, I've, I've had some really good conversations with people over the last, over the last couple, couple months around, you know, this notion that five years ago, 10 years ago, you know, all it took was really cutting edge science and a really strong patient story. And that company could attract the people they, they needed. And everybody, you know, and they would land the top scientific talent with just based on that, based on that dream and that vision and mission. The mm-hmm. problem now is every single one of those cell and gene companies has just as, just as passionate of a patient story, has just as strong of a mission. And so it's not just the science. And you can cap that off and say they've all got just as strong of a culture and just as many perks. And so how does, how do those companies actually, you know, attract the people they need when, when everybody is kind of doing the same thing? And I think that's a, it's, it's a different level of challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Let me get back. Uh, the, the, the second part of that question, I want to dig in a little bit more on yeah. wh- where you see the the most acute need uh, in, in skilled labor right now. Yeah. I, I, I think where I see need, you know, and especially sort of in the manufacturing space, maybe, and maybe the way the answer is where I see the greatest opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I think a lot of the conversations that we have, and you know, just a lot of the, you know, the the data that we see, our industry is still very focused on the bachelor's degree or the bachelor's, master's, PhD as being the inroad and in, in, in sort of a, the gold standard path into the industry. Um, and so, you know, as I mentioned before, our our educational community broadly, you know, over the last 20 years has developed a lot of really interesting alternative pathways, if you will. Uh, those kind of exploded, I'd say, within the last five years, where there's now all sorts of neat little apprenticeship programs, badging programs, micro-credentials, credentials, you know, two-year community college degrees. There's all these pathways that don't into the industry or, or providing, you know, skilled skilled workers that don't require a four-year degree. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of programs out there that that have the potential to crank out a lot of a lot of workers. The industry is slow to embrace it, and I think that's that's where there's a really an untapped opportunity to kind of solve, solve so many of these problems. And I, I and I don't want to sell the industry short on this because I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's a tough problem to unpack because, you know, on the one hand, you can look at big pharma, you can look at some of the major players in the industry and they've dropped degree requirements for manufacturing. They've said, mm-hmm. okay, you know, whether you've got a diploma or a degree, we'll hire you. And, and they mean it. And so when you look at, you know, HR policies from the top down, they've, they've dropped degree requirements. I think where things get tricky is, you know, you're talking about changing the, you know, the the biases of every single hiring technical manager within within that company before it's really going to, you know, move the needle. And so it's one thing to drop a degree requirement. It's something different for that person who's running a team to say, okay, I'm going to give them a shot. I'm going to give those those apprentice that apprenticeship program a shot, and and to sort of wear them down enough where they're willing to take that risk and, and give that a shot, I think is, is where, you know, there's, where there's still tension and where there's, where, you know, that, where there's room for, for growth. It's interesting. It's an interesting, uh, I guess, I guess, challenge or problem in that, like, I think historically, if you looked at academia and industry separately, you, you might look at 
some of the challenges that industry had in, you know, applied skill were rooted in in academia not adapting. And now you're saying sort of the the opposite of that. You're you're saying it's on it's on industry in a sense to adapt to. So has has is academia doing a good job? Do you think? And let so let's 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 break this down. Let's let's talk about like different levels of academia and yeah. what they're doing to sort of prepare that skilled labor, whether it's, you know, in the traditional sense, like you've got to have a PhD if you want to go work for biopharma, which I think is a big part of the perception problem, right? Like even among students, students in school, like in in, in high school, well, you know, I'm I'm a pretty smart guy, but I don't necessarily want to commit to going to get a PhD to get a job in, in biopharma. So I'm just out, right? Like, so, so let me start with the big question: Is academia doing a good job generally? I know it's a it's a generalized question. Doing a good job of adapting the applied part to prepare students, um, and, and is it true that industry in in this case is maybe the one that's a little bit slow to adapt because of those biases you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I I I would argue that that the academic side of the house is doing or or really has the interest in doing a lot. I again, I you know, I when when I started at, at BTEC years ago, I mean, we were, we were the only game in town really, you know, in, in the country or the world at the time that was yeah. doing this. But I, but I think now there are, there are training academic level, you know, four year or above level, you know, training programs really all over, all over the country. I mean, whether it's on the West coast and internationally, I mean, but there's, there's training centers that have popped up, you know, all in, in most of the different big biotech regions. Um, there are, a number of other, you know, proposed centers that are sort of in the works. They're, you know, on top of that, I think the community colleges have been going strong for, you know, again, 20, 25 years with with biotech and, and bioprocessing or biomanufacturing degree programs. I think their graduates ebb and flow in terms of whether they get they get placed and who they get placed with. But I think they're they're there. I think they struggle, you know, for they've got some different challenges just in terms of maintaining enrollment enrollment with a lot of different, you know, competitive pressure from other industries and that sort of thing. So there's some challenges there. But I think there's a lot out there in terms of, you know, just sort of training opportunities between, you know, the universities and and the, the community colleges. And I think, you know, in the last in the last four or five years, I've really seen this explosion and kind of resurgence and in interest in kind of apprenticeship type models and kind of micro credentials and and kind of boot camp style training and all these kind of non traditional pathways into the industry. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity out there. Um, I don't want, again, I don't want to, I don't by any means place, you know, all the blame on, on industry because I think that's, mm. I think it's really, I think well, that'd be bad business. There's a lot normal. of different, yeah, <laughs> that'd be, that'd be bad yeah, right. Well, and, and I think there's, but, and I think there's, there's lessons learned, you know, there's, 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 there's opportunity within all the different stakeholders, even, you know, within a given company, because it's not just, it doesn't all fall on one person by any means. For emerging biotechs, scaling the process development and manufacturing of biologic molecules to clinical standards can be a challenging. However, you don't need to go it alone. Don't miss an episode of the Business of Biotech podcast, where we offer insights on regulatory, funding, and other essential topics. The pod is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva, a global provider of technologies and services that advance and accelerate the development, manufacture, and delivery of therapeutics. Check out the resources at Cytiva.com backslash Emerging Biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com backslash Emerging Biotech. 
It's interesting. And, and this is where I, I want to spend some time talking about like different levels of, of, of academia and, and what they can be doing to improve the situation, what role they play. Um, it, you know, where I live, I, I live in a very rural area of, of Pennsylvania between Erie and Pittsburgh, right? So if you went down to Pittsburgh, I suppose the, the community college slash Votech scene would be a bit different than it is where, where I live in a rural area uh, where like, you know, biotech is is not even on the radar of of the Votech or community college scene in my general, you know, neck of the woods, if you will. I suppose in, you know, Research Triangle and and, and in Boston and and in uh you know in in Philly and San Fran, that that would be different. But tell tell me a bit about that. Like where where I am in, in Votech and you know uh I, I guess anything other than a four four year college. The focus is on, you know, more kind of blue collar uh, education programs. Are there like in 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 cities like where, you know, in areas where you are and in, in, in biotech hubs, are there like concerted, uh, you know, votech level programs for for biotech students and, and how how well, I guess, attended are they? There are. And I. So I think the, the the one plug I'd probably give for anybody who's just looking and, and curious, you know, are there two-year biotech programs out there, you know, in their region? There's a there's an organization uh, called Innovate Bio. So and it, it just it's, it's spelled how it sounds. So InnovateBio.org. Uh, they're a, a National Science Foundation uh, funded uh, ATE center. So they're but they're all it's basically a consortium of community colleges that are all focused on on biotech education. But on their website, they've got a beautiful a searchable database of all the two-year programs out there by by region and location and that sort of thing and a lot of good data out there. So if anybody's just trying to see who's who's in their backyard, I mean I think that's that's definitely worth giving a search. And I and I say that because like the other thing and I'm getting into a rabbit hole and I'll kind of rein myself in quickly. Okay. But like, like when it. when Nimble when Nimble first started up, you know, like I was blown away by some of the conversations that I have with with our our large industry members who you know, would, would sit there and pine and wish and say, I wish there was a, you know, a training center, you know, that, that would do X, Y, and Z. And they were completely oblivious to the fact that there's one within a commutable distance of, of one of their sites. And they didn't know that. And I think the fact that they didn't know that is where I see there's a problem. You mm-hmm. know, so it's awareness I mentioned earlier in, term, in terms of a need for this, you know, students to understand the industry there. But I think from awareness is also a challenge in the sense that industry needs to know there's, there's training programs in their backyard that they they could be plugging into that they're not but yeah i you know there are a lot of really strong uh two-year programs and and not just two-year programs but i think the community colleges have gotten into apprenticeships and other kind of short course pathways and pre-apprenticeships and other you know sort of other other models to get you know to to meet sort of workforce needs um but they struggle i mean I, i think the community colleges struggle and depending on the region depending on the college you know can struggle from from a faculty standpoint, I think, you know, due to this, you know, this whole talent crunch that we're talking about, it's, you know, academia, both community colleges and universities collectively, you know, can't pay the same salary that, you know, that industry can pay. And so they tend to lose, lose good, good teachers, lose good instructors, lose good leadership to, you know, to the boom in the industry. And so that poses a threat to some of the community college programs. And so I think there's, there's a number of different challenges. And I think, you know, to folks that have community colleges in their region, I think that the, the biggest thing, and this is probably a message that I'll keep coming back to, if, you know, whenever I can, that like, 
industry needs to look to how they can engage folks in their local ecosystem because you know they're only as those those colleges are only as strong as you know their their, their industry partners and if they don't have industry advocating for them those programs will will go away and I I, I think we've we've seen it happen before I'm sure it'll happen again and you know when community college administrators are looking at programs they're not just looking at you know the biotech and the biotech boom they're looking at you know how many butts and seats can they fill and and how many people can they cr- crank through and to serve in the community and you know if a biotech program is looking at you know being able to fill enrollment for you know x number of people but they can get three times as many through a nursing program in that in a, in a much shorter time frame or through an it program it's it's a and so I think there's a lot of competition from you know from other sectors. Yeah, a lot of competition from other sectors, and also uh, at the at the high school level, we talked a little bit about how kids coming out of high school or in, in high school and, and graduating high school maybe don't even maybe doesn't even cross their mind that that there's an opportunity to go get uh you know a two year degree in biopharma that would lead to or biotech uh, in general that would lead to gainful employment. What are well, you know I guess what's your perspective and what work are you doing at that you know, pre pre college level, if any, like is is there yeah. work to be is there work to be done there too? Like going into the high school, saying, "Hey, you know, uh, wake up to the to, to the application of this biology that you're teaching in, in in AP Bio." There's a lot of work to be done in that space, and so like, and again, like when Nimble when Nimble stood up, I think we we somewhat consciously didn't want to get into that space because there's a lot of organizations that are in that space, and so. You know, there's there's organizations out there like Project Lead the Way that do kind of you know, STEM and, and high school level engineering curriculum. There's organizations out there or and then some of our, you know, some of the large industry members like Amgen or Genentech have programs in their community. And, you know, many big biotech companies have sort of community based programs that they, they get into the schools and kind of promote what they're doing. I think one of the things that's really been, been you know clear from talking to some of the companies though, over the last couple of years is, you know, they see a need to kind of wake the students up to the reality that this industry is out there before they'll pay attention to, you know, company X's program in particular, they need to understand that the biopharma is important. And I think, mm-hmm. so that's why I think there's a lot of untapped opportunity there. And, and it's something that we've, we've just begun to explore. You know, we've, we've got a, a high school curriculum that we're, uh, I'd say we're piloting now. We're really trying to see where it works, where it doesn't work, what it works with, because I don't think it works as a standalone piece. I think it needs some other other supports to go with it, but we're in the process of piloting that. We're also in the process of just kicking off within the next month or so a, a whole working group really focused on tackling this problem in particular of you know how do we increase awareness and and how how can Nimble kind of help move that needle at the national level when so much of this is is regional. And I think you know you mentioned you know sort of the K twelve and and sort of them seeing you know, these these careers as attractive as as sort of one piece of the problem and kind of wanting them to be able to see where they can apply their AP biology and that sort of thing. I think it's it's much bigger than that though. Like I, I can remember back when I was at the biotech center years ago doing you know doing career fairs and and it hasn't changed. I've had conversations with people in the in the recent years that it's the exact same story that students will walk by the booth and the question they'll ask is do you, do you need to know math? Oh, you do. Okay, and then they move on once once they realize that, that math is important, and mm-hmm. like they don't they don't want to do math. And our industry isn't all over social media in the same way that some of the other industries that are far more attractive, you know, to them are. And so I think that's another whole challenge. But I think you know another one that I don't think we talked nearly as much about that we probably need to from an awareness standpoint. Um, there's some good data out there that shows that unfortunately, like pharma as an industry is is almost at the bottom of 
kind of any trustworthiness index that you look at, at when you look at all the different industries, we're, we're pretty close to the bottom. And yeah. that's, that's across party lines. I mean, that's not, that's not a party line issue. That's, that's totally bipartisan. We're, we're at the bottom. And when you have parents that don't trust an industry that rubs off on the students. And of course, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to, they're not going to seize that. I think what's, what's really sad to me because, you know, at the other hand is, you know, we're talking about a generation that craves meaning and wants, wants meaningful work. I mean, what's not more meaningful than, than some of what's going on in cell and gene therapy. I mean, we're, we're talking potentially curative medicine. And so like, if that message can get, get to the students in the right way, I think it's got, it's, we, we've got, you know, we're right on the cross, the, 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 you know, the, the, the cusp of doing something cool. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah. That is, a, that's a tough challenge to overcome for sure. Uh, that, that perception yep. problem, you're right. The parental influence on career choices and decisions, uh, you know, when, when parents are, are biased one way or the other. And it seems like every time we make a little bit of progress on that front, uh, we take two steps backwards shortly thereafter, you know, the, on the, on the perception front. Um, what is, uh, let's talk for a minute about uh, another level of education. And that's like, again, there's this perception uh, probably among among kids coming out of high school and going into college that if they do want to work on life-changing therapies, they've got to go earn, earn a PhD or an MD or a PharmD, you know, uh, a, a, an advanced degree to get in on the game. Um, and obviously we know that's not the case, right? Like we know that's not the case. We need to change the yeah. perception that, that, that that is the case. Uh, is there work to be done on like post-grad academia's uh i guess play right in in shaping the workforce like does it, is there is there a member is there a faction of of the elite that needs to embrace the fact that you don't need to you know go to school for 14 years to get a, a good paying job in in biopharma you know i don't i think yes i mean i so i think yes and no i mean i i think i think the challenge is so is again so complex when you look at sort of the you know the the graduate level and and or undergraduate for that matter in the sense that you know just as much as the industry needs people academia needs people too and if you look if you look at the research you know the the number of people that are that are pursuing for you know or advanced advanced degrees and staying in academia is just as much of a challenge as you know the sort of the industry's need to kind of lower the education level too so i think I, I think there's there's opportunity for everybody, and I think that's that's why, you know, one of the one of the soapboxes that I tend to get, get on, you know, all the time, where there's an opportunity, especially when you're talking at you know sort of the graduate and postgraduate level, is just helping academia, helping students, helping the, the ecosystem understand that you know the industry has opportunities for just about anybody from any background. It's not just that PhD chemical engineer or that PhD molecular biologist that should be looking at pharma. It's you know. It's graduate level data scientists, computer scientists, statisticians, economists, for that matter, or you know, communications professionals. The industry really has has opportunities for anybody and from all sorts of cross disciplines, and is going to be increasingly more so as some of these new technologies take off within our industry. And so, I yeah. think that's that's really an undersold message out there, and, and a harder one that I don't know that that we've necessarily totally solved is how do you how do you get in there and reach not just the students that are in the obvious degree programs, but it, but in the sort of the, the non-traditional degree programs as well, or non-traditional to pharma, you know, degree programs. It's a, it's an interesting, interesting point. And I, and I did want to ask you, it's a, it's a good segue into a, another uh, line of questioning I wanted to to tackle with you. And, you know, so, so I have a son, uh, my, my son is starting uh, at Penn state this fall. 
uh, and he's going to Penn State for engineering. He's been accepted into their pre-engineering program, and he wants to go down there and major in uh, in mechanical or, or aeronautic engineering. He's not he's not sold on, on uh, which yet. And I've had multiple conversations with him about execs that I've interviewed on this very show who started out in engineering and like in our hardcore mechanical type engineering, and now are you know C level executives with biopharmaceutical. Uh, organizations that are doing really cool protein engineering, biologics engineering. Uh, I, the same can be said for IT, right? Like we, you look at the IT space, yeah. uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning. These these kids who have this perception that, like, well, if I go down that path, I'm I'm a propeller head computer guy, and and they don't necessarily see the incredible opportunities in bio right now around the application of artificial intelligence. And machine learning, computational biology, these crossover sort of disciplines. It's super exciting, whether it's engineering or, or IT or, or bio, like they all, they can all come together. And, and I don't know that, I mean, I know that my, my students, my, my children are not aware of these interdisciplinary sort of crossovers. Um, so tell me, I, I, that leads to the line of questioning around what, like looking at the next five, 10, 15 years, you, you you did a great job, John, like kind of reflecting on from 2003, like, you know, back in the day, it was all about getting academia and industry to talk to, to one another, to recognize one another, to talk about, you know, application. What is that going to look like in the next 5, 10, 15 years? Like what, what, how is technology and this interdisciplinary approach going to affect, it seems to me it would exacerbate the, the workforce, uh, uh, I guess talent, the talent crunch. What are your thoughts? Yeah, and I think it's. I know. I, I, I think you're right. I think it, it it will, and I think it's you know, like when you look at some of the advanced manufacturing technologies that are you know coming out there in this whole world of you know automation or you know AI and machine learning and big data and you know advanced analytics. All that is going to impact you know workforce for sure. I don't think it's the by any means. I'm I'm somewhat conservative in the sense of I don't think it's that doom and gloom prophecy that it's going to. The result in a bunch of layoffs and, and people are going to be out of a job and that sort of thing. I think the nature of jobs will change. I think they'll change slowly. And so I think that's where, you know, like, one of the questions that I think comes, you know, comes up a lot is, okay, what does, you know, what does tomorrow's workforce need to know about any of those technologies that we just talked about? You know, yeah, AI, machine learning, um, automation, that sort of thing. And I, I think the like the reality is like, at some level. I don't think it's. I don't think we're talking about. We need a totally new degree program that's going to focus on all this, and and that it's because companies are embracing more automation. All of a sudden, you know, the workforce better have a whole new skill set that they need to have that they don't have currently. Because I think, like, I I tend to, you know, when I look back twenty years ago, like the the skills that our industry needs are still ninety nine percent there. It's not like yeah. the the skill the the core skills haven't fundamentally changed. What will change in my mind is kind of what kind of what you alluded to in a way that like folks and students like your your son or your kids like they need to they need to recognize that there's opportunities in there regardless you know, like from coming from these other disciplines I think on the one hand so that you know the our industry you know collectively you know biotech and biopharma is going to be needing people that come from a lot of these different disciplines I think at the same time you know we're going to need the incoming workforce to not just be a technical expert in topic of their choice, you know, not just be a molecular biologist. They're going to need to be a molecular biologist who also knows a little bit about automation, who knows a little bit about data analytics, who knows a little bit about 
statistics that has sort of that, you know, those broad, those broad areas of interest, more of the, of the jack of all trades, if you will, where, you know, they may not need to be able to design automation and do all the programming and all that, but they need to be able to talk to people that do. And so I think the industry is going to become increasingly cross-disciplinary where people need to be, uh, you know, able to speak speak with each other a lot more fluently about all these different topics. I think at the, you know, at the shop floor level, I think the one thing that I've been hearing, you know, over the last couple of years in relation to kind of automation and how that's going to impact you know, the workforce is I think it will create the need for a, you know, a shop floor workforce that is uh, better able to, you know, interpret and analyze and react to data and, and trend data and what's going on with a given, you know, production run that, you know, 10 years ago, they, they could probably just look it up in an SOP and, and do X, Y, Z. I think now, I think there's going to be a need, an increased need for kind of critical thinking. And I think that that's going to be an interesting challenge to figure out how to, how to, how to meet. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's interesting. Critical thinking. You know, in, uh, in other industries, automation in, in many cases sort of removes the, the, the necessity for, for critical thinking. Uh, it just reminded me of a, a friend of ours who uh, who works is worked for has no no college degree has worked for a long time in the automotive uh, manufacturing industry and quality control and he was telling me you know he gets paid like triple digits to sit there and like uh, watch an assembly line and literally there's a there are two lights one is a, a green smiley face and one is a red frowny face and when when the when the you know when the automation factor catches something that should cause the red frowny face to light yeah. up he stops the assembly line does some QC, you know, checks it out, solves the problem and, and gets it going again. But like that level of kind of, uh, you know, automation in that industry, has, they're trying to remove as much critical thinking from the equation as necessary on yeah. the part of the, the human. You're saying in, in bio, like there's an opportunity for, you know, to, to apply critical thinking when, when production problems arise. Obviously, it's a much more complex problem. Uh, complex industry yeah well but i think it's the nature like the nature of the role i mean like you know the person that you're mentioning that's working in you know, the, the auto industry i mean i'd say i'd probably argue without knowing that whole situation that that person's actually doing a lot more critical thinking not in the same you know like they're not post, post not frowny so face post frowny face right well yeah. po post frowny face but, well exactly and the same the same thing it's it, they're not they're not you know doing the thing to make the thing but instead of doing that the job is now morphed into more of a troubleshooting critical thinking role. And I think that's the same within our industry on you know, the shop floor as mm -hmm. automation takes off and, you know, some of those steps are, are automated. I think the folks that are working on the shop floor, they'll be the ones that are troubleshooting. And when, when there is that, that red frowny face, what do you do? Right. And, you know, when, when, when automation's gone awry. Yeah. 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 Well, what other, I guess, parties are uh, relevant to the the equation here? You know, industry, uh, we talked about industry, we talked about, you know, uh, we talked about high, high school level education, uh, you know, VOTEC, community colleges. Um, you know, are there, are there other like association level, state, federal, local government level, I guess, plays or vested interests that, that need to come together and be part of this equation? Yeah, I'd say, I mean, like, short answer is all of the above. I mean, all I the above, There yeah. are all those things. And there more. Are, and, and I'd more. say, increase, yeah, and more, and, and increasingly more so. I think there's, you know, in most of the big, strong biotech regions, and even regions that are, you know, more aspirational in nature, there's a lot of interest from, you know, the economic development community, the nonprofits, the, you know, state government, in terms of how to how to grow all this and, and bring that, you know, bring that ecosystem together, if you will. So I think there's there's untapped potential for industry to get, 
get engaged and be able to offer guidance within, you know, within the region. And I think uh, understanding, you know, that's other probably just general guidance that I'd probably throw out there to anybody, you know, in the industry is know who's in your local community. I mean, no, no, just do some research and find out who is your local, you know, bio affiliate, who is, who are, you know, which, which professional associations do have strong chapters, what colleges or community colleges around know, know your landscape and get, get involved. I think, the other challenge, though, that I'll, I, I could probably mention, you know, along these lines that's relevant is, you know, before the pandemic, I always got the sense that people got a lot of, and I, I have had many conversations with, you know, with peers and knew a lot of people that they get their energy from kind of giving back to the community and going to an ISPE meeting or going to go talk to the local college or meeting with professionals in some region, you know, local chapter, they get a lot of energy out of that. It would be a lot of fun. Um, and they do it happily. I think what happened, you know, interestingly during the pandemic is I think people started to guard their personal time a lot more tightly. Mm. And instead of doing your work and then shutting down at five o'clock and then going to that meeting, because our, the nature of our work kind of the boundaries of that initially kind of stretched a lot due to the pandemic and we were all working virtually and could work wherever. I think people started to realize, okay, I got to be smarter. And when I'm, when I'm off work, I'm off work and started kind of drawing a firmer line in the sand. And I think some of that has stuck in, in terms of that work, that work life balance, where I think what the situation that I see now is, you know, at least anecdotally is there are fewer people, you know, from the industry that are, that are using their, their downtime to kind of give back and get involved in the local community. And so I think that's, I would love to see that come back. I don't know the, I don't know the solution, but I think that's part of the, part of the problem also is that there is, there is less engagement post post pandemic than there was before. Yeah. 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 If you missed that, invite it back, right. Embrace that. I mean, it's, it's, it's trickling back. I think, you know, we're seeing more, seeing more activity on the road and, uh, you know, hosting more of our our own events in, in person again, uh, and and I think it's I think it's coming back just albeit slowly. You're yeah. right. There is that it it is the pendulum never stops swinging, right? And when pendulum did swing so right. far to the to the point where there were no boundaries at all, I can see where there'd be some justifiable protection of of time off the clock, yep. right? Yeah, yeah. What haven't I, we're, we're running short on time. I feel like we could sit here and chat about this uh, for, for hours, John, but we're running short on time. What, what haven't, uh, what haven't we spent enough time on here that you think is, is central or important to the story? Gosh, <laughs> I know <laughs> There's we, a lot of different directions. I think, I, I think, I think one word, just a word that we haven't really mentioned that I think, you know, I, I want to kind of just at least throw out there is just the, the whole diversity challenge mm. is is a challenge and is the central one to solve and you know i think the the fortunate thing is again i kind of always draw this kind of post-pandemic you know pre-pandemic i think in the last you know five ten years i it's really kind of been cool and humbling that i think i get the sense that most of the companies have gone from you know diversity being the right thing to do to being mission critical and, you know, I, I really truly see it as being, you know, mission critical to innovation. And I'm, and I'm not just talking about, you know, race, ethnicity, social, de- you know, demographics and everything. Like, it's a broad, it's a broad issue, but I think there's a lot of good research out there that, you know, innovation is fueled better by a lot of diverse perspectives. And so I think it's been really kind of cool to see that companies, you know, big and small are really embracing this as a challenge, I'd say in the last, you know, three or four years, I've seen, you know, the, the diversity side of organizations growing 
you know, exponentially. And so it's, it's great to see that it's, it's coming into its own, you know, just anecdotally nimble, nimble runs a, a diversity initiative, nimble experience. It's focused on, on first and second year uh, college students that are black, Latino and native American. And we're, we're coming into our fourth year, or fifth year, I guess, running that program, you know, and it's been really kind of cool to watch industry change in that time that we've been running that program. And like, you know, in the early in the early years of running that program, our industry, you know, they they had a lot to learn in terms of how to reach students that weren't the rock star chemical engineer or, you know, the, the student who already had their sights on biopharma. How do you talk to that disadvantaged student who's coming from a totally different background? And I, I think, you know, our industry's really come around over the last over the last two or three years. So it's really been kind of cool to see. That's a tough nut to crack too, and I've I've read about that program, that new program you just referenced, John. Uh, and and you 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 make the the nut tougher to crack, rightfully so. Nim, Nimble made the nut tougher to crack on, on its own because you could very easily say, well, hey, you know, we want to uh, we want to jump on the diversity inclusion bandwagon, and we're going to create a program uh, whereby we uh, you know try to make biopharma more attractive to. Uh, minorities. So we're going to go do that in, you know, Research Triangle Park and Philly and 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 San Fran and and at, in Boston at colleges where hey we know there's a minority population at you know at Penn. Yeah. Well, they're they're kind of pre that minority population is kind of predisposed right to to making its way in this industry. Yeah. What Nimble has done is has has gone so far as to say. Not only are we going to go after, you know, creating a more diverse uh, workforce, but we're going to go do that in underprivileged areas, right? We're going to go to schools that are, you know, where, where ki- these kids didn't even, regardless of what color they are, they didn't for a minute think that there was an opportunity for them in an industry like this because they're in a, you know, a, a neighborhood or a town where there, there's just, you know, the perception that there's no opportunity to pursue this this kind of this kind of career. Am I right? Like it's, it, well, yeah, you didn't go no, for you, the, you didn't you go are, for the low hanging fruit, right? But it's, but some of that, some of that's serendipitous in a way, in the sense that I don't want to say that was by, you know, by design, but in the way that the program grew in the way that, you know, we, we've kind of pivoted and I, I don't want to get off, you know, onto this, this tangent too long, but like in the way that the program grew, it's, it's grown into kind of a, a model where we're kind of running little, you know, little different sites, around the country where we're running the program in different, in different regions and kind of leaving it to those regions and those teams to help recruit students and find students. And I think one of the things that's come out of that is we're reaching a lot of little schools that, that are brand new to me. I mean, so, and so like, and brand new to most of us within, within Nimble and in some cases local, you know, new to that region, just mm-hmm. even, even hearing about, and, you know, yes, reaching a lot of, you know, HBCU historically black and, and, uh, you know, colleges and universities, but also reaching just a lot of, you know, to your, to your earlier point, a lot of smaller colleges that those students normally, regardless of the color of their skin or, you know, their background just wouldn't normally be exposed to, to, to life sciences in general. And so I, I think that's a huge win and, you know, just at least a little baby step in the right direction that we're, you know, we're, we're moving beyond just the engineering schools and finding a way to reach students that are in, you know, that are coming from, from more, you know, from smaller schools and different disciplines. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, one parting, I guess, piece of actionable advice for the execs who have been, you know, struggling with this, the the company leaders, you know, from, from new and emerging all the way to, to big bio, the, the folks who struggle with with the shortage, who are vocal about the fact that it exists, uh, but maybe don't know 
what their role might be in, uh, you know, affecting the, the, the problem. What, what should they do? Who should they turn to? I, I don't imagine there's like some clearinghouse where you can go like, oh, here's where I can plug in. But what's your advice there? I think probably the two. Well, so the I think probably the two the two pieces of advice that I give, or maybe three. I think the, the well, the the first and you know foremost is you know try and learn about and embrace some of these non traditional pathways into the industry. In order to do that, though, is sort of where the kind of the two pieces of advice you know that I'd probably throw out there come into play. On the one hand, I think you know our industry needs to do a better job within within a single company. Even know who's involved. I mean, like it's amazing how often. I talk to you know technical leads of a whole program that don't know their HR department, that don't have a strong relationship with their talent acquisition team, and as a result, fingers get thrown all the time in terms of who's who's at blame for the problem. And so, like I think I truly think it's critical that you know senior leadership, the technical managers that are doing the hiring, talent acquisition, who's running the process for hiring, HR, who's who's studying the policies. And you know, sort of job descriptions. All of them need to be talking. And I think it's it's far too often that everybody gets lost and mired in the the day to day of their job, where those partnerships are are weak at best. And I think strengthening those partnerships alone could go, you know, could could raise raise the ability of, of a company to meet some of these challenges a lot, you know, a lot more. I think the second piece is also, you know, back to what I mentioned before. Learn, you know, learn and understand who's in your local you know, your local ecosystem and get and, and look for opportunities to get involved. I think the other thing that I, you know, I see all the time is, you know, I'll talk to a company, uh, maybe, a, you know, a champion at a company who's very active and engaged with the local community college, but that's one person. And that one person doesn't necessarily have a relationship with the CEO or the site leadership at that company, or doesn't have a relationship with the training lead or talent acquisition. And so like, if that person leaves, that relationship with that co- that college is dead, mm-hmm. and how like try, again? It's why it's why it's so important to be talking internally so that that relationship externally with you know with training providers and educators can be strengthened, you know, with the company. So it's not just relying on one person, and a lot more people are bought in. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. I appreciate it. Uh, the work you guys are doing to raise awareness, but also to affect change. I mean, I, I feel like the awareness part has kind of been building and coming to, to the point where everybody's aware. The, Everyone's, you know, you've done a terrific job raising awareness, and now uh, the work you guys are doing to sort of affect change is is admirable. And we'll have you on. I feel like we just scratched the surface. We'll have you on for a part two. We'll get get a little bit deeper into it. I, you know, we th- there's a lot to talk about here, good. and it's yeah, it's it's something we'll keep we'll keep covering. So we'll get you back on. But in the meantime, thank you for for joining me and spending so much time with me. Hey, happy to be here. Happy to be here. It's been fun. So that's Nimble Workforce Director John Balchunas. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva, whose commitment to new and emerging biotech is on display at its virtual biotech accelerator, which I encourage you to visit at citiva.com backslash emerging biotech. I also invite you to visit bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B, where you can sign up for a monthly newsletter that's designed exclusively for Business of Biotech listeners. And while you're online, please leave us a review, some feedback, share the podcast with your colleagues. And as always, thanks for listening. 